And let's take our Bible and turn to the book of Numbers for our study this morning. Numbers chapter 9. When Randy sent out the email um, about the move this week, he quoted this passage that we're going to study this morning. And that was interesting um, because uh, the Lord had already kind of put it on my heart to preach about this topic. I've never preached about this topic before. Um, and when I looked at the passage that he put in the email, I thought, that's the passage. That's, that's what we're going to study this week. I've been thanking the Lord all week uh, for this church family and for um, your amazing patience and faithfulness and adaptability uh, over the last three years. I was thinking Saturday morning that this is the sixth building we've worshipped in in three years. We've gone everywhere from uh, an upstairs office that we called the upper room that we prayed in before the church started uh, to a hotel ballroom, to a women's club, to an old school, to a former church, to this beautiful room. Did I miss any? Did, did I leave any out? I think it's been six. And that's been transition. That's been movement for us. Uh, and you guys have stuck it out with, with pretty much no complaint. But there have been times where our resolve has been challenged a little bit, right? I know for me, this week was that week where I just felt discouraged and, and was trying to figure it out and seeking a lot of, of the Lord and, and just trying to understand. And I want to, excuse me, I want to really commend you um, for not wavering through all of this because our faithfulness to the Lord's leading, uh, even when it's challenging, is the mark of spiritual resilience. And that word has really been on my mind a lot this week. In fact, it was interesting. Adam and I were talking last night about 9.30 on the phone, and I was trying to finish up, and, and he said, you know, our congregation is resilient. And I just laughed and said, that's exactly what I'm talking about tomorrow. That, that word has stuck out, what it means to be resilient. Uh, the definition of the word, and I was excited about this because it has a lot of spiritual implications. Resilience means the power or ability to return to the original form after being bent, compressed, or stretched. And as I read that, I thought that is the very characteristic that is the core of what it means to walk by faith, what it means to live by faith in the Lord. There's a, there's a, a principle that I want to call the law of spiritual elasticity. And the law of spiritual elasticity is essential to our faith. It is the willingness to and the habit of conforming to the will of the Lord. The willingness to and the habit of conforming to the will of the Lord. So that as we're being stretched in our faith, we are constantly maintaining a steady faith and maturing in our faith. The law of spiritual elasticity, that when our lives and our faith are stretched like a rubber band, when we're being pushed and challenged and we don't know what's going to happen next. And there's some uncertainty and some, some maybe even at times some fear or some stress about what might be happening. That that is the time for us to stay steady and to continue to mature in our faith. Because as we do that, as the situation comes back to normal, we're stronger. Now that's what I want to deal with this morning because one of the great challenges to our faith is uncertainty. One of the difficulties about walking by faith is that we walk by faith and not by sight. The Lord doesn't lay out every single detail 
of how he's going to lead us. And I believe he does that for two reasons. One is that if we knew, we'd be very reticent to follow. Because when something is revealed that's in the future, you don't have the perspective of going through the process to get there. And you don't have the spiritual education that God brings in those times to move you to that point of something different. A year ago, we were in the Marriott. A year ago, we didn't imagine that there was a building downtown, let alone a building right here, that we'd be sitting in this church building today. A year ago, we had no idea. We were in the Marriott. We were moving the stuff in and out every week, and that was our life. So if God had said, a year from now, on February 2, you're going to be worshiping in this church at Washington and Taylor, we would have gone, wait, what? What are you talking about? Because we didn't have the perspective of how the process goes. So God doesn't always reveal what's going to happen next. The second reason he doesn't do that is he doesn't want us to walk by sight. Now think about that for a second. God does not want us to walk by sight. He wants us to walk by faith. Because he knows, and he doesn't need to quote any experience because it's abundant all throughout history. He knows that we are quick to grab control. He knows that we are quick to be self-sufficient. That if he gives us any latitude to walk by sight, that we're going to say, we got it. We're good. Thanks, Lord, for all your help. Now we will take charge. God doesn't want that. God wants us to walk by faith. And faith equals uncertainty in terms of tangibility. So, this is why the Lord doesn't lay out every detail. Because when he does, or when we start to walk by sight, how quick are we to say, thanks, Lord, and by the way, you could have moved a little faster. Israel's living proof of that, right? Numbers chapter 9. That's why I believe this passage is so helpful to us this morning. Let's read some verses, and then we'll see what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us. We're going to move around a little bit between passages this morning. So have your Bible ready. Verse 15, Numbers 9. Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously, the cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. The command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud centered over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they'd move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and the night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would sit out. You get the principle now, right? Because the Lord says it about six different ways. Verse 22. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. Now, as I read through that, studied that, that seemed very redundant. When it stopped, they stopped and camped. When it lifted, they moved. 
When it stopped, they stopped and camped. When it lifted, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped and camped. You get the principle? There's no way when we read those nine verses that we can miss the concept because he says it pretty much in every verse. And that's important because the Lord's trying to teach us a principle here. The first thing I want you to see in this text is in verse 15, that the presence of the Lord never left them. The cloud was there by day, and at night it looked like a pillar of fire. Now, the fact that the tabernacle existed at all was miraculous. The fact that there was a tabernacle to be in the center of the encampment with three tribes, three tribes, three tribes, three tribes, all around them, the tabernacle right in the center, nobody right next to it because of the holy place of God's presence. The fact that that was even there was an amazing statement on the mercy of God. Because when we look at the context of this passage, this is a long way from Exodus. And we think, well, there's a long period of time between when they left Egypt and when they get here. But it was interesting. I didn't realize this. As I looked at Exodus when they left and they got to Sinai until right now, there's only 10 months that's elapsed from the time of the golden calf in Exodus 32 to right here in Numbers 9, it's been less than a year. Israel rebelled against God. They built a false idol. They broke the first three commandments that they had heard from the Lord on top of the mountain in the first minute. And Moses comes down with the tablets. He sees the people dancing around the golden calf and worshiping that and saying, this is what led us out of Egypt. And he throws down the tablets and we know everything that happens after that. It is only 10 months since that took place. And yet God says, here's what I'm going to do. Build me a house and I'm going to reside and abide among you. Now that's the mercy of God. Because he was still willing at this point to be in their presence. And he gives them a nonstop visual reminder of his mercy. And not only that, but he also gives them visual insight and visual leading. He says, anytime the cloud stops, you park there. You set up the tabernacle. I'm going to be right here. We're going to stay here. Could be for a couple hours. Could be for a year. I'm not going to tell you. But this is where we're going to be right now. And when you see the cloud lift, that's your insight. Get out of town. Start packing up. Because we're on the move. Now, for people that love to take over and people that love to make rash decisions, this was an unmistakable lesson to them to never get ahead of the leading of the Lord. And also to remember that when the Lord says go, there should be complete trust and no hesitation. That's an important principle for us this morning. That was an important principle for me, even as I'm driving over and kind of, I'm sorry, forgive me, I shouldn't say this, driving over and looking at my notes and just kind of reviewing. I wasn't texting though, so that was good. And as I read that sentence on my notes, I said, Lord, that's from me today. That when you say go, no hesitation. But when you say don't go, stay. And this is part of what we're dealing with right now. And it's not just as a church, it's also personally. Now, here's the problem. We don't get a visual cloud. And I think I I look at this and I say, well, I'm a little jealous of that. That would be nice if we had a cloud that told us exactly what to do. How many would like a personal cloud this week to tell you exactly what you're supposed to do next? 
like the old cartoons, you know, where there's the rain cloud over the guy's head. This wouldn't be a rain cloud. This would be a good cloud with sunshine at where, where it would say, all right, Rhodes, that, that's what you do next. All right, church, I want you here. Now, we don't have that. And sometimes when we're making decisions and looking for the Lord's leading, it isn't completely obvious to us. And that's where we have to wait with patience and with faith until the Lord shows us what to do. But we shouldn't be too jealous of Israel because Israel didn't understand prayer like we do. They didn't understand going straight to the throne of God with boldness as his children and letting our requests be made known. They didn't have the full word of God like we hold in our hands this morning. What a precious gift that is that we hold a Bible in our hands this morning. The full word of God, it's complete. Nothing to be added, nothing to be taken away. They didn't have that. They had the Pentateuch that was being written as they're walking. They don't even have the word of God in their hands. And yet we do this morning. We have the full counsel of God. And they didn't understand what it meant to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit like we do. So we can say, boy, I'd love a cloud. Be great. If, if God would just put the cloud over the building we're supposed to be in, that would be awesome. Yes, I'll grant you that. But we also have prayer and we have his word and we have his spirit. We have the advantage, not them. So there's a matter of dependence here. And we also have to understand that Israel all died in the wilderness. Only two of them made it. So while they had the directional leading of the Lord, while they had visible, tangible, directional leading of the Lord, their hearts were not aligned with the Lord. Listen, you can have a sign on the wall that says, go here. If you're not willing to obey it, that sign doesn't matter at all. Israel had the cloud, and yet they're grumbling in the tents. can't believe we've got to pack up again. Are you kidding me? I mean, come on, let's, let's be realistic in terms of our understanding, right? We just settled in. Honey, why is the cloud moving again? We got to pack up. I don't want to pack up. I'm tired of packing up. This has been one journey after another. I'm so sick of wandering around this wilderness. It's only been 10 months. I know we got to do 40 years, and I can't believe we got to do 40 years. And can you, no, kids, kids, I don't want to pack. Kids, put that down. Come on. Let's not read the Bible sterile, right? Real life? How long are we going to stay here? Been sitting here for months. Why isn't the Lord moving? When are we going to get going? I'm tired of this view. See, if you're not, if your heart's not engaged with the Lord, if you're not willing to do whatever he wants, however he leads, then that's the problem, not the lack of a cloud. Their hearts were not aligned with the Lord. Because everything in our, everything in our head, everything in our humanity argues for tangible certainty. Everything about us says, I want clear, visible direction. But tangible certainty is overrated if it takes the place of trust. God doesn't want our sight. He wants our trust. And trust is always better. Because it keeps us humble and it keeps us dependent on him. And because it's the environment in which the Lord says, I'm going to show you how powerful I am and I'm going to show you how faithful I am. If you will get in an attitude of trust before me, I'll prove myself. Not that I need to, but I want to. I'll prove how great I am. Now, that sometimes 
leads us into challenging situations. And let's take our Bibles and look at a couple examples of this real quick. Turn back over to Genesis chapter 12. Sometimes, often I would even say, when we are getting new opportunities, it presents some personal challenges. And there are a couple very prominent examples that we see of this in Scripture that you'll know well, so we don't have to develop the text very much. But um, it is always helpful when we read the Word of God that we put ourselves in the other person's shoes, or sandals as the case may be. That we try to understand what it would have been like. When I just described what was it like in the tent, right? The conversations that are happening between husband and wife and the kids saying they're restless and we don't have iPods, so what are we supposed to do? Do we count the grains? You relate to that, right? We, we understand what that felt like. Well, I want to try to understand this morning what it was like for these men as they're being led of the Lord. And this example in Genesis chapter 12 is the example of Abraham. I, I find when a text is familiar sometimes that I don't quite get into their psyche. I don't try quite get into exactly what they were were thinking. Uh, and that was the case when I started to read these verses this week. And then the Spirit kind of impressed upon my heart, hey, stop and look here. Stop and understand what's going on. Read a couple of verses here. Chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I'll show you, and I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And to you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now we have no information on Abraham other than a few verses back in chapter 11 which tells us that Terah was his father, Sarai was his wife, and that they had moved from Ur of the Chaldees, which is east of Canaan, over in Iraq, up north, uh, kind of towards Syria, uh, to a place called Haran. That's all the information we get prior to chapter 12, verse 1. Then all of a sudden, we see God speaking to Abram. We don't know if Abram trusted the Lord, what level he trusts the Lord, how much he worshiped the Lord, all we're told is his father was Terah and they had moved to Ur, uh, to Haran, and his wife was Sarai. And then out of the blue, we read that God spoke to Abram. Now God says to him, I have a plan for you. Here's what it requires. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave everything you know. And I want you to go to a place that is undetermined to you, and you're going to settle there. You don't know how long it's going to take. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what it's going to be like. You don't know if you'll even like it. But I'm telling you, when you go there, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. Now, that alone is an amazing statement. I'm going to make a nation out of you. But he says to do that, it's going to require an abundance of change. You can't stay here in Heron because my long-term plan is so much more profound than you could ever possibly imagine. So I want you to get up and I want you to leave everything that you have and I want you to walk into uncertainty. You have my word, I'll help you. You have my promise that I will bless you. But for right now, you have no details. And this is not a short trip. 
Abraham leaves Haran. He comes southwest through Canaan by the Mediterranean. He gets there. There's a drought. He decides he can't stay there. So he goes all the way around the bottom of the Mediterranean into Egypt. He stays in Egypt for a while. And then he comes back up into Canaan about a third of the way up and he settles. The total trip by foot was 800 miles. Now, God didn't say, Abram, okay, here's the deal. You're going to go 800 miles. Use your map quest. You need to get down to Egypt. Stay there for a while because there's a drought. I'll bring you back up. You're going to settle right here. It's going to be wonderful. Everything will be great. Here's the details on exactly where you're going to live, what it's going to be like, who your friends are. God never tells him that. He just says, get up and go. And Abram walks into uncertainty. Not knowing the destination until we get to verse 7 when God finally says, stop here. He had to trust. He had to be patient until the land literally came into view. Now, how challenging is that? That makes my tough week look really wimpy in comparison. Get up and go. Do it at my word. Go where I'm not going to tell you. And settle when I finally say so. And it says in verse 4. That Abram went forth. There was no tangible certainty here. And yet Abram was in the center of God's will. Not because he had tangible certainty. But because he trusted. Despite the lack of tangible certainty. And that's what God wants. God wants us to trust in his leading and be resilient in our faith, even though we may not know what comes next. The key line, look at it, and then we're going to move to the next passage, is in verse 4. It said, Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. In other words, he obeys the word of God. And while he heard it audibly, and we hear it through the word and through the Holy Spirit, there is no difference in our responsibility to obey it. We might say, well, if God would speak to me and say, go, I'd go, that'd be so much better. Really? Because you're holding in your hand a book where God speaks directly to you. And we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, who, not to be mystical here, but this is a reality, speaks to us. The more we're in his word, the more we hear his spirit, the more we understand the voice of the Lord. So when we're praying and the Holy Spirit's speaking to us, we say, yes, Lord, I understand. Okay. We're called to be resilient in our faith, even when the direction is unfamiliar. Second, would you look at Exodus chapter 3 over a couple pages? Because when the Lord called Moses to go back to Egypt... The call to follow his direction put Moses in a situation that was not potentially easy or safe. Exodus chapter 3, look at verse 7. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their sufferings. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I've seen the oppression which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now therefore, verse 10, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, 
so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, look back at verse 7. Moses knew all about the affliction of the people of Egypt because, in Egypt because he had been there. He had been one of them. He had witnessed it. He had been part of it. The reason his mother, Jochebed, put him in a basket when he was a baby was because she knew that if they found out that a Hebrew boy was born, they would kill him. So Moses had experienced this firsthand. So when the Lord comes to him and says, I'm about to deliver the people out, I'm going to get my people out of Egypt. Moses, I think, has to think that is awesome news. God, you go. That is that is fantastic Get the people out. It is it is time. I'm glad they finally cried out to you. Get them out and bring them to Canaan. That's wonderful. Until verse 10, when the Lord finishes his sentence. I want you to go and get them out. Excuse me, Lord. I, I don't think I heard you right. You're getting them out. That's awesome. I, I'm really on with that plan. I want you to go. I have kind of a history in Egypt. They don't really like me down there. You may remember that I killed an Egyptian, and that's why I'm here in the wilderness looking at sheep for the last 40 years. You remember, Lord, that I grew up in the palace, and Pharaoh, my stepbrother, does not really like me too much. And by the way, the people are pretty ticked at me too, all the other Jews, because I never was able to gain their release when I was living in the palace. So, Lord, I'm great with your plan, but I don't think I'm the right guy for this. So I'm good right here, and and please go deliver them. God says, "Uh uh-uh, you're going. Sometimes the Lord's leading is not easy. Sometimes the Lord leading is not even safe. But this is how the Lord leads sometimes. He calls us to be resilient and to trust him by taking us right into the heart of the problem. Look back at verse 10 for a second because he says, I want you to go and I want you to go to Pharaoh. Specificity. I want you to go right to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Now, as I said, Moses was not real popular in the palace. His stepbrother hated his guts, and he had become very, very, very powerful. So Moses is not only going to walk into an unfriendly situation, but he's going to demand, based on the word of a God, that the Egyptians do not recognize or worship in any way. He's going to go in and demand that they release two million slaves for free. At the word of a God they don't recognize. Coming out of his mouth who is hated. That's the assignment. That makes our week not look too bad, right? And God is unwavering this. He says, Moses, I want you to go. But here's what I noticed. I'd never seen it before. The subtle promise that the Lord makes to Moses that's enough to endure with complete confidence. When the Lord says he's going to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and bring them to the promised land. And he calls Moses to be the one to bring them out. Follow this now. He's saying, I will get the people out. I will lead them to the promised land. And you will be the one that will accomplish this. 
What is God saying? God is saying, I am assuring you, you will be protected. Where Moses is facing uncertainty and fear and what's going to happen and how are they going to treat me? Are they going to put me to death? Why would he possibly let us go? God says, listen to my word. They will get out. They will get there and you'll be the one. By saying that, he's saying, I guarantee it by my word that I will help you. There's nothing better today than the promises of God. Difficult situations will always intimidate us if we're moving forward in our own strength. But listen, if the Lord is beside us, there is nothing and no one to fear. He will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Nothing or no one can ever take us out of his hands. And he will provide all that we need and more with abundance. It is the principle of the tabernacle. He is willing to abide with us and we need to be completely confident in his presence. Come on, church. We need that this week. He abides with us. He is indwelling us. He is filling us. He is giving us the resources we need. And he says, just trust me. I've never failed you and I never will. So trust me. So we're called to be resilient when it's unfamiliar, when it's hard or even safe. Look at the third one, 1 Samuel 18. Let's go there for a minute. We're going to pray. 1 Samuel 18. We know the history of this passage well. Saul was the people's choice for king. Israel didn't need a king. They had God, but they loved Saul because he was popular and tall and handsome and had a lot of friends on Facebook. But, but Saul's problem was his heart was not with the Lord. He was all about the surface and not about any depth, which means that the Lord was not with him. Look at chapter 18 and verse 10. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came muddily upon Saul because his heart was so far from the Lord. He raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual and a spear was in Saul's hand and he hurled the spear for he thought, I'll put David to the wall. David escaped now from his presence twice. But Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but it departed from Saul. This is going to get worse. David's going to go on the run. He's going to live in caves. He's going to be hunted like a dog. He's not going to have anybody to talk to. He's going to be alone and frightened, wondering why the Lord was allowing this. And, and, and he'd have to, and he'd know in his heart, I've got to pass up any opportunity for revenge or, or striking out because I'm not going to lay my hand against the king. He can't be proactive. And it gets so bad that he gets to the point of writing to the Lord and saying, Lord, where are you? Where are you? I know you're with me. I know you're leading me. I know I'm supposed to be king. I was anointed by Samuel, but where are you? Why aren't you helping me right now? Now, he knew the Lord was with him, and he knew the Lord was refining him and teaching him dependence. But God was doing it in such a way that David's spiritual resilience was being tested. Listen, unfamiliar is one thing, and not safe is another. But when the situation is not fair, that's when we get a little irritated. Come on, why is this not working right? I'm supposed to be king. Come on, God, I'm supposed to be king. I was anointed. We all know Saul's the wrong guy. His heart's far from me. He just threw a spear at me. What are you doing? Why am I in an unfair situation when he 
gets to be on the throne? Why am I the one that's having to suffer even though I'm righteous and I'm right and I'm being led by you, God? I think that, how many think that thought crossed David's mind? Lord, I'm right. I'm living for you. I'm trusting you. Why is it this way? Now, the Lord uses very different methods to refine us spiritually and to prepare us for what he has next. And even though that process seems unfair and hard to reconcile in our minds sometimes, there is a greater purpose that we can understand in the way that he does things. His ways are not our ways, and his wisdom far surpasses ours. Any comparison between our wisdom and God's wisdom is a joke. His ways are better, and that really means that there's no room for us to question or doubt what he does. That doesn't mean we're always going to understand it, but he never says you're going to understand everything because our wisdom and our perspective is limited. What he does say is here's what I want you to do. I want you to trust me with all your heart. And I want you to not lean on your own understanding. And when you do that, I will direct your paths. How many believe that's a true principle this morning? How many believe that's truth? Trust in me with everything you got, and I'll take care of you. I will direct you. I'll help you. I'll guide you. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. But but if you do what Saul does and lean on your own understanding, forget it. You're never going to understand my will. Now, let's bring it back to Numbers 9. Real quick, back in this text, we see that Israel had this tremendous privilege of having the Lord's visible presence abiding with them, which was wonderful as long as they were in one place. But the real test came when the cloud lifted off the tabernacle because that's when the Lord was taking them to the next place, and the next place was always uncertain, and the length of time was always uncertain, but the message was clear. When it lifts, you go. When it stops, you stop. And here is a rare moment. I love this. There's a rare moment of complete compliance. Look at verse 43, uh, 23, I'm sorry. It says, at the command of the Lord they camped, and at the command of the Lord they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord. few thoughts here. First of all, look how many times the word command is used, not only in verse 23, but all throughout the passage. The command of the Lord, the command of the Lord, command of the Lord. That's not coincidental. The word has a very deep meaning. Literally, it means the mouth of the Lord. In other words, the Lord is speaking directly to them, and they viewed it with that much weight. Now listen, he is our Lord, and we are called to obey his commands without complaint, without delay, without latitude. But here's the question. How often do we read and study the word of God? With that kind of serious intent. I better read my Bible today. I'll look through some passages. I got kind of encouraged. It was good. Listen, we know the Bible's God's word. But do we read every word of this book as the mouth of God? The mouth of God. Speaking directly to our lives. Telling us how our attitude, how our behavior, how our thoughts should change. Listen, it's an overused cliche, but if Jesus walked in here this morning, and we would be so glad that he found us where we are because we keep moving around playing hide and seek. If if Jesus walked in this room today 
and he came up to speak to us, how would we hear him? Would we say, well, I don't know, it's kind of open to some interpretation, and i, I got to think through that? Or would we hang on every word, and when he commanded us to action and called us to live out our faith in a certain way, would we ever possibly be indifferent or dismissive? And yet, as I thought about that thought, I thought, is that how I study the Bible? Is that when I read the Bible and take it into my heart, do I carefully weigh that every word is directly from his mouth and the voice of God is telling us, and I use that word intentionally, he is telling us, this is how you are to live as my redeemed children. The commands of the Lord are not negotiable. They're not dependent on how we feel right now or what we can tolerate. They are the commands of the Lord. And for a rare moment, Israel in verse 23 says, whatever you command us, we'll do. That will change. But for this moment, that's what they do. One last thought. It says they kept the Lord's charge. It's an interesting phrase. It means they acted as spiritual watchmen to carefully guard and protect what the Lord had commanded them to do. In other words, they weren't just, (coughs) excuse me, they weren't just obeying what the Lord said. They were taking extra steps to make sure that they were understanding and following the Lord's leading. Now, we're done. I can't imagine a better principle for us this morning. The uncertainty of the last week is a unique opportunity for us to seek the Lord and very seriously align our hearts with him so we understand when the cloud is lifting and when it is settling down. Several of you said to me on the way in this morning, what about this building? Is there, is there, you know, can we, could we possibly be here? And I said, well, you know, as I explained in the note, there's some details of that. And, and several people said to me, almost everybody that asked me said, well, I'll be praying. And I thought, that's exactly what you need to do. There's nothing better we can do at this point than to seek the Lord and to say, Lord, show us, is the cloud moving or is it settled? Either way, we will obey your command, but but let us know what you want. Let us know. Listen, we got to back that up. We can't just say, well, I'll be praying, and then we pray a couple minutes, and then we're done. No, get to prayer meeting Wednesday night. Let's get on our faces before the Lord and say, Lord, show us. We need to know right now what you want us to do. And that doesn't just apply to us as a church. That applies individually. I don't know about you, but I want to hear the mouth of the Lord. What's God calling you to trust him for right now? Are you discouraged or are you dependent? The two are not compatible. They do not go together. You're either discouraged or you're dependent. When the Lord is leading, it doesn't matter if it's uncertain. You will always be at peace because you will know he is in charge. The Lord's testing our resilience. He wants us to see, to show how willing we are to trust him and to obey his word without fail. And the path may be unfamiliar. It may be a little little bit not what we expect. It may even seem unfair sometimes. But our trust in the Lord cannot waver. Our trust in the Lord cannot waver. He has never 
failed to be faithful. The Lord is so good. How many know that this morning? The Lord is so good. Come on, let's praise him. The Lord is so good to us. And he will be faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, you're leading and guiding us in unique ways, both as a church and individually. And I pray that our resolve and our determination to walk with you, to follow your leading, even when it's unclear, even when it's unfamiliar, even when we don't particularly like it, even when it's a challenge, that we would trust you implicitly. Lord, spur that faith, I pray, in our hearts this week. Give us the confidence that we should always have that you are faithful and you will provide. And Lord, whatever that means, we will do it. Lord, the enemy wants to create fear and doubt. He wants us to, to point us to what is tangible and say, that's what you deserve. But Lord, you tell us to walk by faith. And that's a great thing because it allows us to be dependent on the holy God of the universe who loved us and gave himself for us. How could we do anything else, Lord, but completely rest in you and wait patiently for you? We ask you for direction and guidance. We ask you that it would be clear so that we would not make a mistake and that we would trust you with all that we have. We praise you and thank you and we love you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.